Acts chapter 13. Uh, it is found on page 599 if you're using the Bible underneath your chair. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can take that one with you. Uh, but yes, uh, let me just say it is honestly, it is great uh, to be back with you guys. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it is such a joy to pastor in a church that allows me to take a couple weeks of maternity leave, or paternity leave. Again, I'm not the person who gave birth. Not maternity, but paternity leave. Um, and uh, it's just been awesome for our family of now six, family of six, it's crazy to say, uh, as we adjust to having little Isla glory in our family. And uh, yes, I did bring a picture because I can. Uh, here is my little girl. She is the best thing in the world. She is incredible. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of wish I could be holding her tonight as I preach. So uh, that would have been a lot better. But um, this is Isla, and she is just amazing. And so it's been a really sweet couple of weeks uh, as a family. Um, and so we just are so grateful to you all. And let me wish you as well just a happy Palm Sunday. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. If you didn't know, this is the start of Holy Week. Uh, it's the day that uh, historically Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey knowing that he was going to go to a cross later that week and die for the sins of the world. It's, it's really an incredible day. And, um, and so that's what we're celebrating this week as Christians is, is this amazing uh, event in history. And I don't know about you, but as a child growing up in the church, I viewed things like Palm Sunday and even Good Friday and Easter Sunday as these sort of like lesser holidays. They kind of felt a little gimmicky to me for some reason. And, and on days like Palm Sunday, yes, I did grow up in churches where they would sometimes pass out palm branches to adults and they would say, you could use these if you wanted any, any time. And so they felt always a little gimmicky to me. And as a selfish little kid, uh, I remember like I loved Christmas. The birth of Jesus was amazing because you got presents and at Easter, it was just like my parents gave me a little Easter basket or something. It always felt like a little bit of a letdown. But this week, you have no idea, is so important. It has literally turned the world upside down. The fact that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and entered into a city knowing that he was going to die so that you could be brought into a right relationship with God is amazing. It really is. And so these people who were part of the bigger crowd of his followers, his disciples during that time, they met him at the gates, laying cloaks down and, and waving palm branches, yelling out Hosanna, which is just a word that as a word that connotates adoration and praise. They were welcoming Jesus as a new king. They were wanting to Jesus to be the king of their lives. They were adoring him, they were, they were worshiping and they were praising him. And then later on that week, Good Friday, people would cry out, crucify him. Those aren't necessarily the same exact people who were crying out Hosanna on Sunday, contrary to what most people think. But on Friday, there was another crowd that yelled out, crucify him. But three days later, he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and he defeated death. This is what we call the gospel message. This is an incredible, incredible week. And I really do hope that you will participate this week in the different things that are happening. I, do, I really do hope that you will make it a point to try to be here on Wednesday night, that you will be here on Friday night and Sunday. And, and I tend to downplay this. If you know me, you, tend, you know that I would tend to downplay this. But I really do. I want to encourage you to try to invite people to come along with you as you engage in these various things. If, if there's somebody who's not connected to Christian community and they're believers, these are important aspects of our lives to come and be a part of. Or if people are not Christians, this is the time of the year where people 
are sometimes very open to their, the Christian faith. And so I, I do, I just want to encourage you to, to try to bring people along with you. Uh, but tonight, we are in Acts chapter 13, and we are looking at the first ever recorded missionary journey of Paul or Saul and Barnabas. And this is significant, because if you know anything about what's happened so far in the book of Acts, Christianity has, has really centered itself around the city of Jerusalem. That has been the hub of Christianity. But people have risen up in faith in a city called Antioch, which is kind of in modern-day Syria, and a church has formed. And all of a sudden, this church in Antioch is becoming this new hub, and this church has felt the call of God to raise up and send out people to go and to proclaim this gospel message to more people that have never heard about what Christ has done. And so this church, Antioch, is now operating as a new hub similar to what Jerusalem has been. And this is really significant that the church spreads. It doesn't have a central location, if you will. And so tonight, though, as we look at this journey, we are going to come face to face with the reality that when people encounter the gospel message, which I've already expressed to you tonight, when people encounter the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... They are either opposers or believers. When people encounter that message, they will either oppose or they will believe. There really are two kinds of people in this world. There are the Hosanna people, the people who offer adoration and praise, welcoming Jesus as king. And there are crucify him people. There are Palm Sunday people and there are Good Friday people. There are opposers and there are believers, or as I've put it in your sermon title for your branch notes, there are Good Friday opposers or there are Palm Sunday believers. And so tonight I'm going to read this story to us. This will be story time. And the reason I'm reading this is twofold. One, it's an incredible story. Uh, also, if, if I don't read it, you won't understand what I'm saying. Uh, but also, um, this we believe as Christians that God speaks through his word, and it's really his word that changes us. So far be it from me that we'd ever apologize for reading it. And so I'm going to read this. And if you're anything like me, when you read stories where people are traveling from place to place to place, I always flip back to those maps at the back of my Bible because I want to know where they're going. So I put this map on this screen so that you could follow along, okay? I know it might be hard for you to read if you're like Jesse or Trent or somebody that's in the way back row. So I'm actually going to stand over here, and I might actually show you where they're going. This is significant. This is the first missionary journey. They're going to start out here in Antioch, and they're going to travel to this island all the way up, out to this place called Derby, and then they're going to cycle back around and sort of strengthen all these believers in these places that they've gone already, okay? So Acts chapter 13, if you would follow along with me. In verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they've gone down to this little port, Seleucia, and they've come over here to this island called Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, which is right about here, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This was kind of a common practice. They would go to a new place, a new city. They would first go to the synagogue where people are proclaiming the Old Testament, where people are proclaiming the word of God. They would go to these places because people are seeking to hear the word of God, okay? Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so they go through this entire island, there is no 
transport of cars or subways or something. They're, they're traveling by foot here. They go all the way across this island. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, which is kind of like a governor, okay? They had a lot of power. Sergius Paulus, and Luke wants us to know he was a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And if, if you were thinking he's just irritated in his own like human flesh, that's not the case. He's filled with the spirit when he says that. And to prove that this is from God, it says in verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It's crazy. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they're heading up here now to the mainland. They go up to the city called Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. So this is not the same Antioch. We're now up in this area, up in that part of the world. And on the Sabbath day, they did what they've always done. They went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. That's quite an invitation. Hey, Paul and Barnabas, you have something you would like to say? And Paul, of course, is like, well, yeah, actually I do. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. She says, you Jewish people and anyone who is a God-fearer, listen to this. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So he's referring to the story of Exodus. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, again, he was perfect. They asked Pilate to have him executed, crucified. 
And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, which is another way of, of saying the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But, but, God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So he's saying Jesus is the son of God. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He's saying Jesus never went back into the grave. He has now ascended. He's now with God. He's with God. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, this is the great hope that he's offering them through this sermon. That through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So he said, hey, will you come again? You keep teaching us these things the next week. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout Christians to Judea, uh, converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Next week comes around. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's insane. The whole town. But... When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, you are turning to the Gentiles. We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, so when all the non-Jewish people heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So they go after all these influential people in the city and they say, hey, we got to get these guys out of here. They drive them out. But Paul and Barnabas and these followers, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So now they set over here from Antioch over here to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. At Iconium, they do the same thing. They go to the synagogue, they preach. People believe, other people don't believe, other people oppose them, but they continue to preach the gospel. And so they go down here from Iconium to Lystra and then over to Derby. And in verse eight, it says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looked intently at him. So Paul's looking intently at another person. 
and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice. And I don't think he's speaking loudly so that the volume of his voice somehow makes the person well or not. He's speaking loudly so that everyone could hear what was about to happen and know who was the one healing this person. And he says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. This is crazy. So these Jews that hated them and drove them out of these two places followed them all the way to Lystra, trying to continue to drive them out. They hated them that much. So they come down, they see this crowd that's wanting to sacrifice to them, and they rile up this crowd, and they persuade the crowd, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. They do this with rocks, okay? Supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. That's crazy. I mean, Paul literally feels like Rocky Balboa or like Chuck Norris here. He gets stoned with rocks. Everyone thinks he's dead and he just gets up and heads right back into the city and keeps preaching. I mean, what a man. Right? That'll put hairs on your chest as reading that. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so more people are believing, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So they go all the way back. All these cities that drove them out, they return through these places. Why? They're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So these people go through people are coming to faith there's new disciples being made and they go back to strengthen the believers and not just leave people as these isolated Christians living out their faith they start churches they're strengthening these believers and they're raising up elders and they're planting churches there's they're forming churches in these places that's what these people are doing then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. So they just did a big circle. They came all the way back around, right where they started, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Man, that's good stuff. If you want people to oppose you, then share the gospel with them. 
If you don't want people to oppose you, then don't share the gospel with them. And maybe even just embrace their belief. If you want people to oppose you in life, then share the gospel with them. If you don't want them to oppose you, then don't do it. Don't do it. And maybe even just align yourself with their beliefs. See, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are Hosanna people who adore Jesus and want him as king. And there are crucify him people. There are Palm Sunday people and there are Good Friday people. There are opposers and there are believers. See, every place that Paul and Barnabas go, they are met with people who believe and they are met with people who oppose them. And so I want to briefly look at these two groups of people in our story and just ask us to consider prayerfully tonight, which group are we a part of? So first, the Good Friday opposers, just what I'm calling them, the Good Friday opposers. We met one right off the bat, the magician Bar-Jesus. Look in verse 8 of chapter 13. This magician is someone who must be connected to this proconsul, this governor, Sergius Paulus, again, this man of intelligence, because this uh, proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of God. He must have heard a rumor of what was being said in the synagogue, so he summons them. But this magician opposed them, it says in verse 8, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. In verse 45 of chapter 13, you see this whole crowd, this whole town gathered around to hear again the word of God in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But verse 45 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And then you go down to verse 2 of chapter 14. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then in verse 19 of chapter 14, you have these Jews who again came hunting down Paul and Barnabas and their band. These Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. These are opposers. What I want us to think about tonight is this. Why, why are people so opposed to others believing this message of Jesus? Why are they so opposed that someone might have a relationship with God through Jesus? I mean, isn't that like not a very good pluralist thing? to do, to oppose somebody because they believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the way to God. Well, I think the reason is this, people who oppose, they oppose because they are going to lose something. People who oppose don't just merely oppose because they don't intellectually believe the message although that's partly true, people who oppose, oppose because they're going to lose something. I mean, look at the magician. 
the magician is going to lose his influence and irreplaceableness amongst this intelligent and influential proconsul. This guy has a lot of power. And it's, it's thought of that this magician is somebody who must have been summoned by this proconsul for wisdom and advice and knowledge. And all of a sudden, he's not running to this magician anymore. He's saying, hey, bring Paul and, and Barnabas to me. I want to hear what they have to say. He's, he's about to lose something. These Jewish leaders in verse 45, they're seeing this whole town turning away from their need all of a sudden to go to these Jewish leaders for spiritual help. I mean, just look at the verse right before this. It says that this group of people that's gathering together, it says, are devout converts to to Judaism. So these are people who are kind of the best of the best. These are like your committed people, the people that you like being a part of your group because they're committed. And they're not just Jews from Israel. These are people who've converted to the faith. And so these Jewish leaders are looking at this crowd who is gathering and they're saying, hey, that's one of my disciples. That's one of my people. And all of a sudden they're not running to me. They're running to something else. And look what it says. It says they were filled with jealousy. And it's when they were filled with jealousy that they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling. What happened that whole week? It wasn't happening. They got jealous. They're about to lose something. They feel they're being rendered unneeded all of a sudden. The people who oppose are people who don't believe, not just because they simply don't believe, but because it's going to change things. They're going to lose an identity of being Jewish, maybe, or or being heralded as God's people, or of being needed or having the upper hand with the people in the town. This is why people oppose Jesus, because they are going to lose something. When I think back to when I was dating Liz in college, um, it was just such a fun time, you know? Our relationship was, was we had a, a, a lot of fun together. We'd go on a, a ton of fun dates all the time. I mean, our, our playground was Southern California. So to go to college in Southern California was so fun. There's so many things to do. So we go on all these fun dates together. We do all these fun things. We would like hold hands, right? We do, we do we'd have like wonderful, conversations about our past and our present, and we'd, we'd dream about our future, or we'd go and study together, right? We'd say, well, I got to study. Let's go. It was just an excuse to go to coffee or whatever. We'd go out to coffee. We'd hang out, you know. Maybe we'd, like, kiss or something, right? Like, we had this great relationship. Liz looked to me to kind of be her man in her life, right? Okay? I can't imagine what would happen if some other dude or or hunk of a man came along, right, who was way more chiseled than I am, who could have, who could be a better conversationalist, who was maybe a better hand holder, or maybe had more money, he could go on more extravagant adventures, or he was a good kisser or something, I don't even know, right? If this hunk of a man came along and started to steal her away from me, right? If he threatened to take her away and render me useless and meaningless in her life, I'm going to tell you, I would get jealous. I would want to fight back. I would want to try to keep her, right? This is what idolatry does. If the maker of the world comes along and says to you, I have come for you. I have lived perfectly for you. I have died for you and I have defeated your sin so that it no longer has to control you. I have defeated your death so you don't have to fear it anymore. And so if you embrace me as I embrace you, 
If you receive Jesus as the free gift of salvation from God, you can have God as your God again. That's incredible, right? Well, whatever was your God before that moment isn't going to sit back and be idle. It's going to fight. It's going to oppose. It's going to say, crucify him. Crucify him. See, if you go out in the world and in word and deed and you give the gospel to people, others will oppose you because they don't want to let go of whatever it is that they're clinging to. Because an invitation, a call from Jesus to come to him and to be saved is a call to the the grip of the hands of your heart to sort of let go to whatever it is that you're clinging to in the moment. It's a call not just to invite Jesus now as an addition to your life. It's actually a call to let go of whatever it is that you've been clinging to. It's to let go and to receive a different God. Not just a lifeless God, but what Paul and Barnabas call, and then in verse 15 of chapter 14, he says, uh, you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, not to, 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 to loosen your grip just to an idea, but to a living God, a true God, not a lifeless false God who takes from you, but a God who gives you life and hope and forgiveness and freedom, all that is being offered here in chapter 13, verse 37 and 38. This is what this call is to. Uh, I I put a picture of this. It'll be on the screen here. I got one of these for my birthday. If we throw it up here, AJ. You guys know what this is? Dude, this is a scalp massager, okay? These things are amazing, okay? Um, But I found something to be very true. You either love scalp massagers or you hate scalp massagers, okay? You either, if you don't know what this is, those little tiny little balls of magic come over your scalp like this and massage your head and it is it is like sheer bliss okay or if you're like my so you might love it like me or you might hate it like my wife who won't let this go near her head at all or there might be a third category okay which really ends up falling into the hate it category and this category would be my kids who say they 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 love the scalp massager They'll say, oh, dad, do it to my head, do it to my head. In the moment, those little balls barely touch their scalp. They crumble to the ground and they tell me to stop, okay? <laughs> they, they think that they love it, but the moment they're experiencing the scalp massager, they realize, I hate this. I hate it, right? The reason for pointing this out is not just to point out incredible birthday gifts that I get, okay? <laughs> okay. No, this simple and slightly ridiculous uh, scalp massager sort of illustrates, I think, in the same way how people respond to Jesus. There really is no middle ground. There really isn't. People oppose the scalp massager just like Jesus, or they love the scalp massager just like they love Jesus, or maybe many people claim to love the scalp massager just like Jesus, but the moment they're experiencing his life and his rule and his reign in their life, they're saying, actually, I don't like this. 
when they begin to experience Jesus' kingship in their life, they say, I don't really know about this. And they might become opposers now to Jesus. So there are Good Friday opposers, but the good news is, is that even though many will oppose Jesus, there will be, there will be people who believe. There will be people who believe. There are what I'm calling tonight Palm Sunday believers. And let me say this. If you want people to come to faith in Jesus and have a restored relationship with God and have their lives changed forever, then share the gospel with them. If you don't want people to come to faith in Jesus and have their lives radically changed, then don't share the gospel with them. If you want people to come to faith in Jesus and be made new people, then share the gospel with them. But if you don't want them to come to faith in Jesus and become brand new people, then don't share the gospel with them. It really is as simple as that. It really is. So if you share and show the gospel, if you present words and deeds to people that display this like Paul and Barnabas, people will oppose you, but people will also believe. They will, that's what our passage shows us. Look at the proconsul in in verse 12 when he sees this crazy thing happen where this magician becomes blind and has to be led by the hand. It says in verse 12, the proconsul, this intelligent man, not this guy who's just blown, uh, tossed here and there by the latest fad within culture or something. He's an intelligent man. He believes, it says, when he saw what had occurred. So he sees the miracle that transfers this Um, his heart into belief. But what's interesting, it says, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it really is both word and deed. His man is transformed because of what he sees, but it's really because of the teaching of God's word. He believes. You see the crowds in verse 42 when they hear this Old Testament proclaim that, that people have been waiting forever for this Messiah to come and to be a savior to the world. And Paul says, he's come He was crucified and he was raised. It says in verse 42, these people went out begging that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. And then in verse 44, it says the whole city gathered to hear the word of the God. And then in verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, referring to this passage that was proclaimed, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They go into the next city in verse one at Iconium. They entered together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then you get down into this really messy story in verse eight of cha- uh, through 18 where these, this man is healed and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas like there's Zeus and Hermes, right? So it's a very Greek culture and they tell them that they're really not the living God. They point them to the living God Right, But these people, something's happening here. And Luke is pointing this out, I think, to pit the beginning story against the end story. Because in the beginning story, this man goes from full health to blindness. At the end of this story, of this journey, this man goes from poor health to health. 
He's pitting these things against each other that you could be like this lame man and walk because this man has faith. And then finally, in verse 21 of chapter 14, it says, when they had preached the gospel to the city that they were just driven out of and almost killed and had made many disciples, they returned to the previous places. So people go, they're opposed, but people are also believing. But what's causing them to believe? Have you ever thought about that? What's causing these people to believe? I mean, what is it that makes them believe? Well, I think you'd have to say, like, in, in large part, it's God's word. It's this gospel message. It's the deeds that are, are being married in those moments with this message, that they're seeing not just the word of God or the deeds of God, they're seeing them together. The power and the word of God. Yes, this is true. But, but what brings belief? If we could go even to, to a deeper level, potentially, to what's really happening and what this story is expressing to us. I mean, is, is what brings belief? Is it really just as simple as sort of laying out all the truth claims in life onto an examination table, and then we just t- kind of take scientific methods and philosophical methods, and we analyze all of them, and we say, well, this one seems to be the truest, so that's what we will believe. Or they all kind of seem to be not sufficient, and so I just won't believe anything. Or they all seem to be false, so I'm not going to believe anything. Is that how belief really happens? Well, any of you who believe in this room would say, well, that's not really true. That's not how that ultimately really happens. Yes, people see the truth of the gospel, and they believe, and then they see it, and then they believe that it's true through the actions that they see, through the power of what's happening. They see that it must be true, but also what's happening in this story is that all these people who believe, they are seeking for something that is more true than what they are already experiencing. What brings about belief in these people's lives? It's because they're seeking something more true than what they're already experiencing. I mean, just think of the proconsul. He's already really smart. He already knows a lot. He's intelligent. There's already this powerful magician that sort of is his, like his aid in life, but that's not enough. He says, there has to be something more. Bring Paul and Barnabas to me. Or all these people that are are coming into the synagogues day or week after week, hearing the word of God. When they hear this proclaim, they're saying, yes, we've been waiting for the Messiah. There must be something more true. There must be something more true. These crowds, they've been waiting for the light to dawn upon the Gentiles. And in verse 48, they begin rejoicing and glorifying God. Because they've waited for this. They've been waiting for something more true. And then you even see this, this, this lame man. He has this faith to believe. And even these people who start worshiping and sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas, they, they sort of respond to them as if they're like, we've been waiting for Zeus and Hermes. Like, these guys are finally here. Notice that these people who believe, they're, already, they're always waiting for something more true than what they're currently experiencing. Let me put it to you this way. Our kids were able to go to Disneyland for the first time last November, okay? And it was, it was so fun, right? It was a blast, okay? But before that, we would always take them, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about, we would always take them up to the Woodburn Outlet Malls to the Disney store, okay? And we take them into the Disney store and they have like Disney music and a video screen and 
you know, stuff to buy, basically. And we'd go there, and I would, you know, it's not the greatest parenting moment, but I'd slightly brainwash them into thinking that they had been to Disneyland, right? I'm like, totally, yeah, it's free, right? It's nearby, okay? But there's a problem, okay? There were other people that they knew, other kids, who had actually been to Disneyland. They start talking about this place called Disneyland, and they start hearing these rumors that there's something better than the Disney store. They see advertisements or, or, or see images or pictures or hear stories about this place called Disneyland. They realize there is something more true than the Disney store. There is something better than the Disney store. There is Disneyland, okay? So we went, and it was so fun. And the other day, it was like a week or two ago, we were up in that area, and we went to Woodburn. We took two of our kids to the Disney store just to kill some time. And it was fun. We had a good time with them and everything. But when we left the store that day, my kids didn't look at me and say, hey, when can we go back to the Disney store again? They said, hey, when can we go back to Disneyland again? When can we go back to Disneyland? Not, hey, when can we come back to this store again someday? No, they had experienced the truer version of what the Disney store is offering them. Yeah, it was fun. They could enjoy it for what it was, but they knew it wasn't the real thing. And in the same way, believers, Palm Sunday believers, are people who know there is something more true out there than the current idols that they pursue and give their lives to. And they hear about Jesus and how Jesus is the only true God, the only one you can give your life to, and he won't just take, take, take from you, but it certainly seems like he gives far more than he ever asks of you, and they are ready to make the God change. They are ready to open their hands and their grip to whatever this little God is that they've been given their life to, and they realize that Jesus is a far superior, truer king to give themselves to. Because now they have something, rather someone, that is more true. They've come to see that their, their need for forgiveness, they realize that they haven't just wronged other people and that they're not a perfect person, but they realize that they've actually wronged God and they need forgiveness from God, but that through Jesus, that forgiveness is offered to them. They realize, like we see in verse 38 and 39 of chapter 13, that their lives have been spent trying to find freedom in all these different ways, even through the law, and they realize that they can't really be free, but if they come to Jesus, Jesus is the one that can truly set them free and offer to them his perfect record. So I ask you tonight, are you a good Friday opposer, or are you a Palm Sunday believer? If you knew what I was asking you, and if you are not a Christian and you are here tonight, and again, let me just say, I'm really glad that you're here. You're welcome here, and I, and I hope you will keep coming back and joining us. You might say to me tonight, well, Josh, I'm not an opposer. I'm, I'm neutral. And, and I know what you mean when you're saying that. I do. But let me just lovingly press you on that for a second. Are you really neutral? Are you truly neutral? Because if Jesus was, was literally standing in front of you tonight in the flesh, and he said to you, you, you are not able in and of yourself, nothing you could ever do, you can never do enough good at this point in your life to earn a relationship with God, 
You can't do it. But don't worry, I have come and I've accomplished everything and I offer my life to you so that you can have right relationship with God. But you must open your hands and serve no other gods. You must come to Jesus and submit to him as Savior and Lord of your life. Those gods that you've clung to your entire life, can you freely let go of them and come to Jesus? If you aren't ready to do that, then you would want to say, I believe, on Good Friday, crucify him. Because Jesus is an affront to your way of life. Or if you're a Christian, and maybe tonight you're, you're a Christian, you're like, I've already come to God. I'm a, to use your cheesy language, Josh, I'm a Palm Sunday believer, right? But, there, but there's something in your life that you just can't let go of. Your fingers just so tightly grasp to it. Maybe it's just your future and the uncertainty of it. Maybe it's some substance that you return to far too often to kind of numb yourself. Or maybe it's just having sexual freedom in life. Or maybe it's the promise of having a future spouse. Or maybe it's this job of your dreams. And you're afraid if you really did let go that maybe that wouldn't be God's plan for you and you just don't think that could be something you could bear. Well, let me tell you, that thing that your fingers are so tightly gripped around, you will worship whatever it takes to gain that thing in your life. And simultaneously, then you are not saying yes to Jesus. You aren't a Palm Sunday believer. You might be posing as a Good Friday opposer because Jesus is a potential threat to your hope and dream in your eyes. See, I think God is looking intently at us tonight like he does through Paul in both of these situations. And he is saying to us, rise up and walk. Experience the forgiveness and the freedom found in Christ. And we are left to believe and to walk in the power of his spirit, in that freedom, in that life. Or we are left to oppose and to walk in darkness like this magician and be led by the hand, by whoever it is that in the current moment we view as a wise and smart voice in our culture that's gonna lead us to the thing that they say is true. So tonight, if you believe, like the proconsul, like these crowds, like Paul and Barnabas, and you are now a part of Christ's church, and you're a part of this sending and going movement, and as you experience the freedom found in Christ and the forgiveness that he offers to us, and as you are going into Corvallis and onto your campus, and you are sharing and showing the gospel, that you are offering people the goodness of Jesus, some people will oppose you. They will. But some people will believe. They really will. And you will get to experience what these disciples experienced in verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God, I just want to ask you to.